Hello and welcome to Queer as Fact, the podcast bringing you queer history from around the world and throughout time. My name is Eli. I'm Alice. And I'm Irene. And today we are again talking about the Mexican artist Frida Kahlo. We have a few content warnings before we start this episode. In this episode, we'll be talking about ableism and disability, as well as injury, surgery, and amputation, as well as discussions of suicide. We'll also discuss instances of self-harm. The episode also includes discussion of misogyny and queerphobia, both during Frida's life and by modern scholars. The episode will also contain brief mentions of political assassination, imprisonment, Stalin and the atrocities perpetrated by him, as well as mentions of racism specifically against Mexican indigenous peoples, and of drug addiction, alcoholism and domestic violence. There is also non-explicit discussions of sex and one instance of a mild swear in a quote. Also, unfortunately, we are being circled by helicopters for some reason today. (laughs) If this is our last episode, we're all in jail. So I apologize if you can hear any of that in the background. We'll try and get rid of it as much as possible, but it is what it is. I also wanted to make it absolutely clear that this is episode two of our discussion on Frida Kahlo. So if you haven't, you might want to listen to episode one. In episode one, we talked about the first half of Frida's life uh, until her return to Mexico in December of 1933. And as I mentioned last episode, we're going to talk about the rest of Frida's life today. And after that, we're going to get into a discussion about what we know about Frida's attraction to and relationships with women. As I suspect some of you may want to skip to that, I'll put the timestamp for where that starts in the description and you can just do the gay bit if you would like. (laughs) As I mentioned, Frida and Diego returned to Mexico in December of 1933. When they were back in Mexico, Frida and Diego moved into a new house that had been built for them while they were overseas. I did say house. I should have said houses because it is actually two houses. One is pink for Diego and one is blue, which is for Frida, and they're connected by a bridge. That's super cute, honestly. I wish to have this. (laughs) (laughs) Shortly after they returned to Mexico, Diego began an affair with Frida's younger sister, Christina. Oh. Hmm. That's the worst thing that a person could do to their partner in that's terms of, the, like, affairs. That's the worst thing a person could do to their sister, frankly. That's true, too. So we don't know a lot about the specifics of the affair. We don't know how long it went on for or when it ended. Uh, but it is clear that it's, like, an ongoing thing. Like, they didn't, you know, hook up a couple of times. It, it goes on for some time. Frida was obviously distraught to learn about this, and she moved out of their cute two houses that they've just moved into and into an apartment. But despite this, Frida and Diego do continue to see each other regularly, and Diego, like, kept clothes at Frida's apartment and stuff like that. Okay. So she was like, you're sleeping with my sister, I'm going to move out, but, like, we're still together? We're just... I don't think they're together, in that they're, you know, clearly actively having a fight, but she hasn't caught a full contact. Okay. She's not like, this is totally over. Yeah. And indeed, they do reconcile. So in July of 1935, Frida wrote to Diego saying... All the rages I have gone through have served only to make me understand in the end that I love you more than my own skin, and that, though you may not love me in the same way, still you love me somewhat. Isn't that so? I shall always hope that that continues, and with that I am content. 
and they resumed their relationship. Okay. There are more people out there, Frida. You can fall in love with another person. <laughs> and she does fall in love with other people. Yeah. Like, Frida has multiple extramarital affairs that are quite lengthy and quite important to her. I'm not going to actually talk about a lot of them in depth because most of the ones that get talked about most are with men and they're still important to Frida, but they're not ones that we have time for in this episode. But, you know, the photographer Nicholas Murray is generally the most prominent one that comes up. They have a very, like a, a very intense relationship that was very important to Frida. She also had an affair with the Japanese-American sculptor, Asamu Noguchi. There you go. If you really want to know about that, there's some names that you can Google. I feel like Frida and Diego then would have just solved so many problems in their relationship if at some point they'd had a chat about like opening their relationship. Yeah. And actually scholars are kind of divided on if they actually do have that chat. So some of them did say that Frida and Diego over time arrived at an arrangement where they understood that their relationship was a special thing, but they could have relationships outside of it. I don't know if that's true or not, to be honest. And it's clear that even if that is something that they agree at some point, neither of them are fully happy with the fact that the other one is having relationships with other people. Mm. So even if they have kind of agree that this will happen, it seems more like they're resigned to the fact that this is going on and they're putting up with it, but it's not good. In particular, Diego was apparently fine with Frida having relationships with women, but he was not okay with her having relationships Mm -hmm. with men. So I'm pretty standard by folk. Yeah. The one exception I'm going to make to not really talking about Frida's affairs with men is the affair that she had with Leon Trotsky. (laughs) I knew we were coming here. (laughs) (laughs) So I'll just give you like some very brief background into who Leon Trotsky was. Trotsky was a key figure in the 1917 Russian Revolution, after which he held various government positions in Russia. That's as in-depth as I'm going to get with that. fine. Following the death of Lenin in 1924 and the subsequent rise of Stalin, Trotsky's position was gradually destabilized and he was exiled from the Soviet Union in 1929. And then he moved from country to country, struggling to find somewhere to grant him permanent asylum. Frida and Diego were sympathetic to Trotsky's plight, and Diego was involved in convincing the current Mexican president to grant Trotsky asylum in Mexico. Trotsky and his wife, Natalia, therefore arrived in Mexico on January 7th, 1937. Frida was one of those who greeted them when they arrived, and they travelled in secrecy to the Blue House in Coyoacan, where they were going to live for two years until Trotsky's relationship with Diego broke down. Frida's family moved out of the house to accommodate Trotsky moving in. Guillermo, her father, didn't understand who Trotsky was, and when Frida explained it to him, said, I want to talk to him. I want to advise him not to get involved with politics. Politics are very bad. Once moved into the house, Trotsky immediately began to work on a variety of political projects, including a biography of Lenin. Both Trotsky and Diego were obsessive workers, but the couples still spent time together, so they'd have their meals together and they'd go on like little outings together and stuff like that. Trotsky was known for being a man who stayed like quite formal, even with people he knew pretty well, yeah. but he was unusually relaxed with Frida and Diego. So it oh. sounds like they had a nice time. According to Jean von Heyenort, who was Trotsky's secretary and who is the source of a lot of our information about the affair, it was soon apparent that Frida and Trotsky were interested in each other. They would speak to each other in English, which was a language that Trotsky's wife did not understand. And Trotsky would give her letters hidden between the pages of books and he'd like hand the books over in front of their spouses. It's like quite bright to have a clandestine affair when you're living with both of your partners. But, you know, if your partner's had an affair with your sister, like, I feel like anything's fair game at that point. 
Mm. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's well, true. and Natalia uh, Trotsky's wife did quickly find out about the affair, or at least okay. like strongly yeah. suspected something was going on, and she was jealous of this, and she was quite depressed about this mm-hmm. going on. Diego apparently was unaware. <laughs> um, if he had found out, it would have resulted in an explosive conflict because of how Diego was, yeah. and therefore possibly a scandal that could have had serious political consequences given how important like Trotsky's reputation yeah. and the mm. attempts to rehabilitate it were at that time, which possibly has something to do with their decision to end the affair. Uh, okay. Again, we don't know that much about this, but at the start of July, Trotsky went to live in the country about 90 miles out of Mexico City, and Frida visited him there briefly. Jean believes that it was then that they decided that they needed to end the affair. Okay. One last thing about the relationship with Trotsky is that Ella Wolf, who was a friend of Frida and Diego's and the wife of Diego's biographer, said that it was Frida who broke up with Trotsky and that he then wrote her a nine-page letter begging her to take him back, which Frida sent to Ella and told her to destroy. <laughs> she didn't destroy it herself, but she sent she it to like, Ella. She was like, hey, check yeah. this out and then burn it. Yeah. Our source for this is a private interview that Ella Wolf did with Hayden Herrera. I don't know. Make of that what you will. <laughs> Maybe it happened. Maybe. Maybe. It's just funny. That yeah. could be true. It could be. I wanted to return to talking a bit about Frida's politics now. So I'm going to read you a bit of a lengthy quote from Hayden Herrera to give you an idea of the general tone of the scholarship okay. about what Frida was like as like a political person. Herrera says, although there's no question about where her sympathies lay, the intensity of Frida's politics remains a subject of some controversy. Some people see her as a leftist heroine, others see her as basically a political. The heat or coolness of her concern seemed to depend on the political bias of the person to whom she was talking, and of course on Diego's current views. We'll come back to that. Okay. Thus, leftists tend to perceive Frida as a vehement communist, while those who are either naive about or indifferent to politics, or those who disapprove of Frida's communism, tend to see her as a non-political creature. In part, I just found that funny, because I felt like it was Herrera, like, diagnosing me as a leftist. Um, He's like, fine, Herrera, I am a commie. <laughs> yeah, Herrera's I also like, find this funny where she's like, people who don't like communism tend to be like, Frida's not a communist, what are you talking about? Yeah. Like, that's how that comes out. Mm. Well, and yeah, and I think that's kind of how it goes. Um, but yeah, like, as I've alluded to, I struggle to see Frida as anything other than a vehement communist. Yeah. However, there are various complications to talking about the specifics of Frida's politics in certain times and things like that. Mm-hmm. And in her biography, biography of Frida, Gunit and Corrie talks about a few reasons why Frida's politics can be difficult to talk about. So I'm going to go through a few of those now. First of all, as we've discussed at some length, Frida was fervently nationalist, and this is not in line with orthodox communist ideology over the time, which sought to replace national loyalties with international solidarity. However, as we've discussed, this sort of nationalism was very common in Mexico at the time, and Corrie notes that most Mexican communists had similar views. Okay. It's also, I feel like, I don't know about this time, but, like, nationalism and communism together is something which continues to come Mm. up through the 20th century for, like, a long time. Like, all throughout Asia, that's very... Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Um, yeah, it was something that Ankhori noted as, like, a complicating factor, but I didn't find it particularly challenging, which is why I put it first. Yeah. Yeah. There's also debate, as that quote from Herrera suggests, over how closely Frida's views aligned with Diego's, with some believing that Frida basically just flowed along with whatever Diego's opinions of the moment were. One friend put it, if Diego had said, I'm the Pope, Frida would have become a papist. Okay. 
Is that a comment on Freda's politics, though, or is that just a comment on Freda's devotion to him? It depends on the scholar, but at its most extreme, the suggestion is that Freda has no interest in or perhaps even ability to understand politics. She's just following along with what her husband said. This frankly seems kind of misogynist. Yeah, it is. It does, yeah. You know, there are more nuanced takes on it where, yeah, like Freda was very devoted to Diego and like I think it's reasonable that you might want to present a united face with your spouse Mm, and things like that. Also Uh, that you might just talk over political things with your mm. spouse and then come to a conclusion you both agree on because you spend a lot of time talking about politics with your spouse if you're both into politics. Yeah, and I didn't see anyone suggest that maybe Diego's politics were influenced by Frida but I think it's also worth noting that that seems like a real possibility. Yeah. We have noted before that Diego would like take criticism on his paintings and change them when like Frida had something to say about yeah, yeah. I don't see why that shouldn't extend to other areas yeah. of their lives. When Diego was expelled from the Mexican Communist Party, Frida followed suit and resigned in 1929. However, she was readmitted in the 1940s, whereas Diego did not gain readmission until after her death. Frida had joined the Mexican Communist Party when she was a teenager, and Alejandro stressed that her political activism predated her relationship with Diego, describing her as a Marxist-Leninist and of her own mind. I'm inclined to believe Alejandro. Yeah, so like, as we've agreed, I think it's reasonable that her politics would have been influenced by Diego, but it's too far to view Frida as apolitical and just mindlessly following Diego's opinions. Yeah. To her journalist friend Rosa Castro, she said, I was a member of the party before I met Diego, and I think I'm a better communist than he is or ever will be. <laughs> <laughs> well, Get wrecked, Diego. Get wrecked. That seems fairly clear. Yeah. The last complication is Trotsky. On May 24th, 1940, Trotsky and his wife survived an assassination attempt. Because by that time they had had a falling out, Diego actually came under suspicion and he went into hiding, leaving Mexico for the United States and living in San Francisco for a while. Oh, okay. On August 21st of 1940, Ramon Mercader succeeded in assassinating Trotsky. And because Frida was acquainted with Ramon, so they had met in Paris a bit earlier... She was therefore considered suspicious as well and was interrogated for 12 hours by the police and held in prison for two days. Okay, that's very intense. Yeah. Mm. Later, when he was seeking readmission to the Communist Party, uh, so the Communist Party of Mexico were Stalinist, and particularly by the time Diego was seeking readmission to it because Trotsky was dead, being sympathetic to Trotsky was no longer really politically viable. Diego would claim that he had invited Trotsky to Mexico in order to facilitate his assassination, and it has occasionally been argued that Frida and Diego were in on the plot. Um, Okay. I agree with Herrera in dismissing this as nonsense. And it seems like a pretty typical example of the sort of opportunistic boast that Diego was inclined to make about all sorts of things. Yeah. Frida also later disavowed Trotsky. In a 1954 newspaper interview, she said that she had never wanted to have him in her house and said, he went out very little because he was a coward. He irritated me from the time that he arrived with his pretentiousness, his pedantry, because he thought he was a big deal. So obviously we have to take into account that this was said for the newspaper at a time when, like, the public view on Trotsky had shifted, but she also expressed similar sentiments in her diary in 1952. Towards the end of her life, Frida increasingly became a very devoted Stalinist. There's a lot to unpack there, but I'll just quickly note that Stalin's crimes against humanity, such as the Great Purge, weren't known about during Frida's lifetime. At the foot of her bed, she had photos of Engels, Marx, Lenin, Stalin, and Mao, and she had dozens of books about socialism and communism in her library. On November 4th, 1952, she wrote in her diary, Today, as never before, I am a communist being. I've read the history of my country and of almost all the nations. (laughs) That's that's big. (laughs) Yep. 
I know their class conflicts and economics. I understand clearly the materialistic dialectic of Marx, Engels, Lenin, Stalin, and Mao Tse. I love them as pillars of the new communist world. Look, I've got to say, that's not something that a person who just kind of follows her husband's politics but doesn't care about it would write in her diary. I agree. (laughs) (laughs) No, absolutely not. Yeah. So, yeah, like, I I feel that Frida's general political position is very, very clear. It is difficult to talk about it, but, you know, yeah, politics are difficult to talk about. Yeah, I don't feel like we've run up against anything that is just, like, absolutely contradictory and makes Mm. me go, well, this doesn't make sense at all. Like, everything she's said, it's like, I see why she could have believed this at this time, and Mm. I see why she would have said this. Like, about Trotsky, for example, I see why she might have disavowed Trotsky when she had previously been very pro-Trotsky. Like, it all seems to make Mm. sense. Yeah. Yeah. So to give us like a little case study of something that scholars kind of differ on or find a bit tricky to discuss mm. regarding her political opinions, we'll go back to 1937 and talk about a portrait that Frida painted of herself and gave to Trotsky some months after their affair had ended. The portrait is called Self-Portrait for Leon Trotsky. Straightforward. Yeah. <laughs> Herrera and others interpret this as an attempt to tease her ex-lover with her beauty. Herrera describes how she is dressed fit to kill and says... The seductive, worldly Frida of the Trotsky portrait, having rejected her lover, now teases him by giving herself back to him in the form of a portrait. Margaret Lindauer, who is very critical of Herrera, and it's a good read, um, (laughs) thinks that this understanding of the portrait is just an assumption that's based on the fact that Herrera and other scholars are aware that they had an affair. And therefore, they're like, this has to be about that, rather than being like a genuine analysis of the painting. And she also thinks that it's indicative of how gender informs how Frida's paintings are read in general. Mm. So Frida's work often did document quite personal experiences, but her work, like Diego's, also references the contemporary like socio-political situation. Nevertheless, her work is categorized radically differently from Diego's. His is understood as being inspired by, you know, historical and political events that he's driven to try and document. And hers is seen as an attempt to process her emotions or even as being driven by the need to fulfill the creative impulse that was frustrated by her lack of ability (laughs) to have children. Ah, yes. Uh, I really do feel like, and to be clear, I know nothing about art and have no skill in analyzing art, but I really feel like often when I read a scholar analyzing art, they'll just see whatever they want to see in that picture. Like, I wouldn't have looked at that painting and been like, oh, she looks very seductive. Like, you know, she's wearing pretty modest clothing. She's just kind of standing there in, like, a very formal portrait pose. She's not doing anything that you would consider seductive. It's not her nudes. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) If she was reclining on a bed in, like, much less clothing, I'd be like, sure, that's a seductive picture. But it's not. She is literally just standing there. Yeah. Yeah, It's not that hard to paint a nude self-portrait to send to Trotsky (laughs) if you want to tease him, right? (laughs) So I feel like they're just like, oh, she gave him a portrait after they broke up. Well, this must be about their affair. Therefore, Mm. it must be about her trying to tease him therefore this portrait must be seductive and none of that has any connection to what's actually in front of them do we know like what was their relationship like after they ended the affair did they continue a friendship yeah i i think that like at worst their relationship is fairly cordial um and then you know at some point diego and trotsky have a falling out the reason behind we don't know exactly yeah and like at that point it's not like frida and trotsky just hang out anyway yeah like at that point it's over with and then he dies But yeah, I think by this point, you know, he's still living in a house. Yeah. And 
Yeah, I, I mean, imagine. I guess if they're if they're still friends, it's just not that weird to give your friend a self portrait, is it? Or maybe it is. I don't know. I, oh, yeah, we discussed I, this last week. That would be weird. <laughs> it is pretty weird. I think that there's genuinely sort of discussion to be had about what's up with this picture. Yeah. Uh, Lindauer furthers her own reading of it, and it's like quite a political one. So the painting is dedicated for Leon Trotsky with love. I dedicate this painting, the seventh of November, nineteen thirty-seven. Yeah, isn't that, that his birthday? It is his birthday. Yes. It's also the twentieth anniversary of the October. Revolution. I like the way that you just revealed on air that you know Trotsky's birthday <laughs> off, off the top of your head. Oh no, the shame. Yeah, no, Trotsky is one of those people who have like a very pertinent birthday, like Hosea yeah. and Steve Rogers. What's <laughs> <laughs> a Hosea, Trotsky, and Steve Rogers have in common? Yeah. Queerest fact trivia would be great. When is Hosea's birthday? St. Patrick's, Patrick's Day. Day. Ah, okay, okay. Mm. So very recently, happy birthday, Hosea. Thank you for listening. Because of the significance of this date, Linda views its inclusion as being a direct political reference. In the painting, Frida depicts herself as wearing a colonial-style dress associated with the bourgeois, mm. rather than her typical Tawana dress. This isn't analysed by Herrera at all, beyond her note that it is curious. Lindauer views this as indicating disjuncture with Trotsky and suggests that the painting might therefore be said to mock the fact that many of Trotsky's supporters were from privileged social classes. Oh. Oh, yeah. Like, you could debate that reading of the painting as well. I think I'm generally sympathetic to Lindauer's attempts to read Frida's paintings with sort of more depth and social consciousness than Herrera does. It does seem like a pretty big oversight of Herrera to just be like, curious choice of outfit when we know that Frida's clothing was like... Political... Yeah. Mm. Yeah, and like a very symbolic thing. Yeah, I, I say that she doesn't analyze that in the biography, uh, and she doesn't. But Herrera does have other work about Frida's paintings. Oh, yeah. So maybe she does analyze this elsewhere, but it's not something that she chose to talk about in the biography, just okay. to be clear. Like you said, like, is that what Frida was thinking when she painted this painting? We don't know. We have no idea. But at least that is a reading which kind of takes Frida and her intentions seriously. Mm. And isn't just like, what a hoe. Yeah. I mean, it's possible, I guess, that she painted this to tease Trotsky. Yeah. But I don't know then. Yeah, the choice of outfit. What are you trying to say? Hey, Trotsky, I'm hot and bourgeois. But returning to the question of Frida's politics, I wanted to note that this painting raises some interesting questions. So we know that Frida questioned or like criticised Trotsky later on. So was that genuine or was that her just saving face? If it was genuine, you know, should we understand that she was already critical of Trotsky and or his ideology in 1937? You know, was she critical of him before he arrived in Mexico? How does that factor into her affair with him? How does that factor into her opinions being influenced by Diego? Mm-hmm. You know, there's, there's a lot of analysis that you could get into there. Yeah, yeah. So I now wanted to talk about Frida's painting in some depth. 1938 was a very big year for Frida's career. She sold her first paintings to the actor and collector Edward G. Robinson. Frida also exhibited a few paintings in a small group show early in the year and was invited by Julian Levy to have her first solo exhibition in his Manhattan gallery in October. The exhibition happens and the critical reception of that exhibition is pretty good. She sells a number more paintings, I believe. In April of that year, she had met André Breton, who was the leading figure in surrealism when he was visiting Mexico. I will tell you what surrealism is in a moment. (laughs) 
he and his wife Jacqueline stayed with Frida and Diego, and Frida did not like Andre. She thought he was pretentious and arrogant. Okay. Like she thought about Trotsky as well. Allegedly. <laughs> yeah. Where's Andre from? France. Okay. Andre, however, adored her work, and at his invitation, Frida sailed to France in 1939. She went to France because he had promised to organize an exhibition which would include her work, and she was very annoyed when she arrived to find that he'd done basically nothing to actually organize it. When it finally did take place, the exhibition was not a financial success for Frida, but she did sell a painting to the Louvre. Oh, oh cool. Well, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Apart from that, while she was in Paris, Frida is introduced to the sort of like general bohemian art circles of the time and she spent time in like artist cafes and nightclubs mm-hmm. and stuff like that she met contemporary artists such as duchamp kandinsky and picasso the latter of which we gave her a pair of earrings that look like hands <laughs> um frida actually painted herself wearing earrings in two of her self-portraits so if you ever see a self-portrait of frida wearing hand earrings, earrings that look like hands you can point out to the date that you're uh, with at this art gallery that picasso <laughs> gave her those and maybe they'll think your cool frida trivia knowledge is sexy <laughs> Maybe. The, like, circles that she was in had a game called Truth or Consequences where the players would be asked a question and if they refused to answer honestly, they'd be, like, given a punishment. So it's essentially kind of like Truth or Death. Kind of, yeah. yeah. Frida was asked what her age was and she refused to say and so they told her that she had to make love to the armchair. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. This is exactly as I imagined this game yeah. to be. So, Frida did have fun in Paris sometimes, but for the most part, she did not like Paris. She didn't speak French very well. She thought that Parisians were decadent and full of empty posturing. Um, and in particular, although the Surrealists embraced her, Frida did not like the movement, or for the most part, them individually, referring to them as this bunch of cuckoo lunatic sons <laughs> of bitches. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> I'm going to talk at some length now about how Frida falls into the artistic canon. Okay. So, again, you know, the timestamp where we start talking about which women she may or may not have had sex with is in the description. (laughs) Surrealism is where we're going to start, so I'm going to tell you a bit about that now. Surrealism was an artistic, literary, and philosophical movement that emerged in interwar Europe. The movement was specifically headed by André Breton, who had published the Surrealist Manifesto in 1924. Surrealists sought to react against the rationalism that had dominated European thought and art for some time, and instead championed the irrational, seeking to access repressed thoughts and desires of the subconscious. So their view is that only through understanding the subconscious and integrating it with the conscious could a complete understanding of reality be possible. Yeah. So Frida's work does incorporate elements of surrealism, such as hybrid figures and the irrationality of floating objects. Yeah. She is therefore formally considered to be part of the surrealist canon, and this is seen in her inclusion in various reference books. Nevertheless, many argue that Frida was not actually a surrealist. Frida's biographers have argued that she could not be. For example, Andrea Kettenman said, although many of her works contain surreal and fantastical elements, they cannot be called surrealist, for in none of them does she entirely free herself from reality. And this is often supported by Frida's statement that, I never painted dreams, I painted my own reality. Mm. So, like, to be clear, Frida paints things that are not literally true, but that are seen by her biographers as expressing, like, her understanding or perceptions of her reality, and therefore they don't think that her art is one that can be seen as aligning with surrealism as a movement is what's being 
expressed there. However, Lindauer argues that these characterizations misrepresent both Frieda's work and the relationship of surrealism to reality, Yeah, saying that surrealism was not interested in dreams, the irrational or the unconscious in and of themselves, but as a set of tools for reconfiguring consciousness into what Breton called a kind of absolute reality, a surreality. <laughs> <laughs> I, pro- I, I feel like I mispronounced that word, but I don't think I could do it better, so we're just going to leave it there. Yeah. yeah, that's sort of what I was going to mm. say when, like, you told us what surrealism mm. was. And it yes, was I led like, you here. You did purpose. lead us here. And it's like, <laughs> this is like expressions of sort of internal feelings and desires mm-hmm. and that kind of thing, just in ways that are not... Literally Literally, true. yeah. And it's like, that seems... Like right? what Frida's yeah. doing. Yeah, so like Herrera says that Frida used surrealist tropes, quote, as a way of coming to terms with reality, not of passing beyond reality into another realm. And she specifically says that to argue that Frida was not a surrealist, but this is fundamentally the same as the stated goals and drives defining the surrealist art movement. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Frida herself denied that she was a surrealist, saying, I never knew that I was a surrealist until Andre Breton came to Mexico and told me I was. (laughs) (laughs) Frida was nevertheless happy to hobnob with surrealists and to submit her work to three international surrealist exhibitions between 1938 and 1941. Later, she would disavow surrealism uh, more vehemently, saying in the early 1950s, I do not consider myself to be a surrealist. I detest surrealism. (laughs) To me, it seems to be a decadent manifestation of bourgeois art. But it's important to note, by that point surrealism had fallen out of style and was generally derided as being decadent and European and many people denied being surrealists who had previously explicitly aligned themselves with the movement so ultimately I do think that Frida's own perceptions of her art are key her statement that she was not a surrealist should not be dismissed but her statements can't be taken without regard for their context yeah Mm -hmm. it's kind of silly for any artist and any art movement to try and be like is this person a surrealist or not like it's not like those things have defined boundaries. It's not like you like cross out of surrealism and it's like you're absolutely not at all a surrealist mm. now. Like she can be sort of influenced by and involved in the surrealist movement and also be yeah, associated sure. with other movements. Like I don't feel like this is kind of an is she or isn't she question really. Mm. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. Um, I think it is kind of like a bit easier to say were they or weren't they, not necessarily to the exclusion of other things, but, you know, were they or weren't they a surrealist with surrealism as opposed to other artistic movements because, like, there's some artistic movements where the people who are understood to be a part of it are very, like, loosely grouped and are kind of considered to be a cohesive thing by art historians talking later. Yeah. But with surrealism, it was seen as a very defined group that you were in or out of at the time. So, like, I mentioned that it was headed by Andre Breton. Yeah. And, and, like, you know, it's not just that, like, we can understand him as a figurehead. Like, he was like, we're going to do surrealism. Here is the book about surrealism. And there were ways in which people were expected to conform to the orthodoxies of the movement and things like that. So, like, I I feel like that influences this a bit. But, you know, like, yeah, you're absolutely right. I was going to ask before when you mentioned Andre and the first time you mentioned him, you called him, like, the key surrealist or something. And I was Mm. going to kind of stop you and be like, was that a mistake? Do you mean a key surrealist? No, I don't. But he is just, like, the surrealism king. Yeah, he is the guy. Incidentally, like, the Truth or Consequences game was one – I don't know if he invented it or if he just, like, administered it – but he was like apparently a real stickler for the rules and everyone had to play it like exactly right which sounds so I don't know I don't care can you Um, imagine sitting around with your drunk friends playing truth mm. or dare and one of them is a stickler for the rules like they would be the worst person to have at a party which like first I think gives us some insight into Frida not liking Andre (laughs) yeah but also I think kind of gives us an idea of his character and like the ways in which he would have 
also perpetuated that kind of like rule keeping in surrealism. Yeah. I also wanted to return to that quote of Freda saying, I never knew I was a surrealist till Andre Breton came to Mexico and told me I was. So Frida often spoke about her work as being amateurish and unimportant and something that she didn't like really care about. Frida wrote to Lucien Bloch, for example, and said, I've painted about 12 paintings, all small and unimportant, with the same personal subjects that only appeal to myself and no one else. She would express surprise when, for example, Gillian Levy said he was interested in exhibiting the paintings and was dismissive about her painting sales, saying that the buyer you know, could have gotten something better for the price or, you know, they must have just bought it because they were in love with me and things like that. (laughs) She was also quite dismissive about her process, saying that she, you know, barely painted or, you know, she was barely painting at the moment and that she was a very lazy painter. And when she did talk about the time she actually did get around to sitting down and painting, she would say that, she, you know, she would just sit down and paint like anything without serious thought. To some degree, these attitudes are clearly an affectation. Yeah, mm. I was going to say, we saw her, like, preliminary sketches mm. for things last week. Yeah. And also just, like, if you kind of look at a bunch of her paintings and how they're composed and so forth, I just don't feel that that's yeah. possible. And also we know that, like, Frida's painting was very important to her life, and mm. not all the time, but a lot of the time, and increasingly she did spend a lot of time on it. It was sort of her central concern. And she did take it very seriously. In thinking about why she says these things, it's possible that pretending to not take her own art seriously was a defensive strategy, you know, influenced by the fact that her art wasn't taken seriously by the art world for much of her life. Mm -hmm. So women weren't really taken seriously as artists at all at the time. And the media, when talking about Frida, would create a dichotomy between the famous Diego Rivera, who was physically huge himself and whose art was physically huge and seen as, like, public and important – and his little wife, Frida, who painted these tiny personal paintings as a hobby. Um, So, for example, one positive review of the Levy exhibition referred to her as Little Frida, and another more negative one criticised her work as being more obstetrical than aesthetic. And then there's also the fact that, as we've discussed uh, in the last episode, Frida's work often featured Mexican folk motifs and cultural imagery, and this has been used to support the understanding of Frida as someone who was just, like, dabbling in folk art rather than being a serious artist. Yeah. So racism and sexism are both here. Yeah. By a serious artist, in quotation marks, I mean, like, someone who is intellectually engaged with the Western canon of art. Yeah. Essentially. Yeah. And, like, to be clear, people are serious and legitimate artists regardless of if they engage with that or not, people working in like folk traditions and styles yeah. who don't reference or are not aware of the broader Western canon are I'm still, still legitimate artists. artists. Yeah. Also hobbyists, still artists. Yeah. And I want to make that clear because the next thing I'm going to say is that's not what Frida is. And I don't want it to come across that I'm being like, no, Frida wasn't like the actual folk dabblers. She was a serious artist. That's not what yeah. I'm saying. But Frida was, in fact, highly educated about art. She was knowledgeable about a diverse range of artists and art movements, and the adoption of her style and subject matter were conscious choices and highly political, consciously affirming her commitment to Mexican Indigenous culture and her solidarity with the masses. Frida's depiction of herself also served to create an impression of herself as a purely Mexican artist who was not influenced by European art movements, but instead by Mexican traditions. And both both Diego and Andre were very, very keen on this image of mm-hmm. her. Interestingly, like Frida, the Surrealists were really interested in Mexico's pre-Columbian history and in its artwork, and it was specifically due to this that Breton went to Mexico. Mm. Um, so Breton viewed Mexico as being naturally Surrealist. Uh, oh, he that's viewed such it- a thing to say. Yeah, well, he's a European white man. <laughs> yeah. So he viewed it as being a place of contradictions, citing as example 
quote, the perfect nobility and terrible poverty of the Indian people. Andre, like, I'm not surprised that a white man said that in the first half of the 20th century, but yeah. come on. Yeah, so, like, obviously that's quite racist. But it's interesting to compare Breton and Frida's interest in pre-Columbian Mexican culture and art. So Breton's interest is very exoticized. It's very othering. Sarah Lowe argues that Breton's interest is, quote, at odds with Carlo's own undertaking, where Carlo's appropriation of native art traditions stems from a restitution and revaluing of pre-Columbian art in the context mm-hmm. of her own culture. The Europeans' ethnographic interest in Africa, Oceania, and to some extent Mesoamerica provided other religions and forms as inspiration. And this also plays into part of why Frida is argued to not be a surrealist sometimes. So the surrealist movement was fundamentally a European art movement. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, it was founded in Europe by men whose ideals had been shaped profoundly by World War One, and it was emblematic of a post-war European cultural crisis of identity. Frida's own work, as we've discussed, was specifically characterized by a Mexican cultural and political context, which can't necessarily be easily reconciled with like a European art movement, the need to create a new European identity. Yeah, yeah. yeah. However, Oriana Badley and Valerie Fraser have noted that while their individual circumstances were very different, post-war Europe and post-revolution Mexico were both facing crises of identity mm-hmm. and a rebellion against European heritage. And surrealism's concerns therefore do seem to have some cultural relevance here. Yeah, in as much as we can say anything about this. Like, I feel like it's fair to say that Frida was influenced by surrealism. Yeah, I think it's important to mention surrealism as a, like, contextual element, as, like, an influencing force in her art, but, like, it's it's obviously not sufficient to describe her Mm. work. You can't just be like, well, Frida was a surrealist. So we're going to return to talking about Frida's personal life now. In 1939, Frida and Diego got divorced. Fair. I would have divorced Diego like 10 years earlier. And Frida moved to Coyoacan, so she moved into the blue house, leaving Diego in the twin houses. So it's like a family home. Yeah. And so now Diego has a pink house and a blue house joined by a bridge just for himself. Yep. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) That is pretty tragic, like, from Diego's perspective. Mm. Well, I mean, hold off. Okay. I didn't say Frida divorced Diego. I said they divorced. Oh, okay. So... They continued to see each other fairly often, as with the time that they were fighting because Diego had slept with Christina, and Frida handled Diego's correspondence and business transactions, and they also like entertained together and made some public appearances together during this time. Okay, so they were like somewhat divorced. They were like somewhat divorced. Friends gave various reasons for why Frida and Diego got divorced. Some say that Frida couldn't satisfy Diego sexually or vice versa or that he was trying to protect her from reprisals resulting from his political activities. To Time magazine, Diego said, There is no change in the magnificent relations between us. We are doing it in order to improve Frida's legal position, purely a matter of legal convenience in the spirit of modern times. In his autobiography, Diego said that, I began to take stock of myself as a marriage partner. I found very little which could be said in my favour, and yet I knew that I could not change. I loved her too much to want to cause her suffering, and to spare her further torments, I decided to separate from her. A little later in the autobiography, he also says, I simply wanted to be free to carry on with any woman who caught my fancy. Those two things don't contradict. If he's like, I'm clearly a bad partner and I have no intention to change, so I broke up with her. And also, I wanted to be free to carry on with any woman who took my fancy. Like, that makes sense. It's like, I didn't want to hurt her by being with her while I did this. I'm not saying they contradict. I'm just saying that he's, like, quite vague in that earlier quote. Yeah. And I think, like, probably what's at the heart of this is he wants to keep having sex with just, like, whichever women he wants to, and that's not working out. Yeah. Frida had comparatively little to publicly say about the divorce, telling 
telling reporters that the reasons were personal and that they hadn't been getting along. I had to include this, but it's also kind of a waste of our time that I included this, because on December 8th, 1940, Frida and Diego got remarried. Oh, okay. And Diego moved into La Casa Azul. This was the result of a lot of back and forth, and it came apparently with two conditions. The first is that they would share household expenses equally, and the second was that they wouldn't have sex. With each other. With each other. Not just ever. (laughs) Okay. Her biographers disputed if these conditions were upheld, so Zamora said that Diego continued to pay a greater portion of household expenses, and after Frida's health declined, began to pay all of them. Oh, yeah. She also said that those close to them disputed whether or not they were having sex. So a painter who assisted Diego came to the house to see you one day and was told by the houseboy that, uh, you know, Diego would be a little while because he'd just gone to bed with the Sonora. I wonder why they weren't going to have sex. Like, if they clearly want to have sex with each other, I wonder what they hoped to gain from that arrangement. But yeah. do they clearly want to have sex with each other? Like, why do you say that? You keep doing it. <laughs> <laughs> I we had all these quotes about Frida liking Diego's body and stuff. Yeah. So she's yeah. A- attracted to him, I think that's fair to say. Um, yeah, like, I don't know, people float various reasons about it. There's some that go on about how, like, Frida didn't want to have sex with Diego, knowing that he was having sex with all these other women, or that, like, they just didn't view each other sexually anymore, but, like, they still wanted to have a partnership. I don't really know if any of these are true. I don't think we can conclusively say what the situation is there. Yeah. So they're living in La Casa Azul in Coyoacan now, and that's where they'll continue to live for the rest of uh, Frida's life. Frida decorated the house with all sorts of stuff, which I will list for you now. So she had pre-Columbian figures, folk art, toys and dolls. She had a fetus in a jar, which we discussed last episode. Oh yeah, yeah. she did Um, have that. She had Judas figures, which were these like paper mache painted effigies that were burned in the streets during Lent. I am. Okay. And they they also appear in her paintings as kind of one of the, like, Mexican cultural images that she depicts. She had a skeleton in her bed and another on top of the canopy. (laughs) Like a real skeleton? Oh, I don't actually know. It's life-size. I don't know its provenance. Okay. So it could be, like, a model or it could be, like, a guy. Surely a model. You don't I, just keep I a man's that. skeleton in your bedroom. You I don't mean, just keep a fetus in a jar in your bedroom either. <laughs> I feel like that's w- less weird than keeping a man's skeleton, to be honest. I agree, I yeah. guess. Diego added a studio to the house for her to work in, and he also put a small pyramid in the garden. She also, and this is my real reason for talking about this, had many pets that lived there. <laughs> I will also list these for you now. When you say my real reason for talking about this, do you mean like my real reason for doing a double episode on Frida Kahlo? Or no, like- this is going to be very short. I just mean like <laughs> I thought I'd also tell you a bit about the house to set the scene in which all yeah. these animals are milling about okay. in. So her pets included birds, a little deer. A little deer? deer? Yes, his name was Granizo. <laughs> she had two parrots. She had several of those, like, hairless Mexican dogs. She had two spider monkeys. Oh, she oh had, monkeys. And she had an eagle called Gertrudis Cacablanca. An eagle? An eagle, an eagle. yes. <laughs> Where did she get all of these? I don't know, black market slash a normal store, depending on the legalities of <laughs> animals in 20th century Mexico. Yes. <laughs> so one of Frida's spider monkeys was notably very bold and would roam around among the guests at meals. So Marjorie Eaton remembers encountering him in 1934, saying, I came for lunch and a spider monkey promptly sat on my head and took the banana out of my hand. I had to balance the monkey, whose tail was around my neck, as I was showing my sketches. I like that they weren't like, oh, sorry, we'll take that away. They were just like, just deal with it. it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's his house too. Yeah. 
Frida's parrot Benito would snuggle up with her in bed and another parrot would like sit in the yard and apparently calmly yell, I can't get over this hangover. (laughs) (laughs) I am going to shift tones quite rapidly now because we need to again talk about Frida's disability. So Frida's back and right foot were increasingly painful and from 1944 onwards Frida continuously wore a series of 28 corsets Mostly plaster, although one was steel and three were leather. Although the corsets aided her in being able to sit and stand more comfortably, they were themselves painful, and Frida described them as being like punishment. In 1946, due to her acute back pain, she underwent a bone graft and spinal fusion. Four of her vertebrae were fused with a piece of bone from her pelvis and a 15 centimeter long metal rod. The operation seems to have been botched and it led to a rapid deterioration of her health. The reason I wanted to talk about this was to address some of the narratives that her biographers have about her injuries and her experiences of pain during this time. So both Hayden Herrera and Martha Zamora openly claim that Frida exaggerated her symptoms, had unnecessary surgeries, and refused to follow doctor's advice. And this results in kind of like essentially them blaming her for part of her own suffering. On what basis do they make these claims? Well, Herrera uses Frida's paintings as evidence of this. For example, saying that she depicted her suffering not only to document her experiences, but also to manipulate her audience in order to gain sympathy. So Herrera's basically being like, she faked it because she did a painting about it. Clearly she's looking for attention. Yeah, and look, I I don't know the full extent of Herrera's thought process on this i'm not going to be like well this is because of this because clearly i don't think this is correct and i think it's pretty inexcusable comment to make so herrera said an invalid can be pardoned for hypochondria in frida's case of course there also was an element of narcissism indeed it is possible to argue that invalidism was essential to her self-image and that if frida's physical problems had been as grave as she made out she would never have been able to translate them into art so that gives you an idea of the sort of tone with which herrera talks about that's Jesus Christ. Yeah. That was also just so dehumanizing, mm. like the way she was just using the word like invalid and hypochondriac. Yeah, yeah and, like, I quite agree. It's not like she's talking about a human person. Mm. It's also like a common thing you hear people with like chronic illness and chronic pain yeah. say they get is like, oh, well, if it's as bad as you say, you wouldn't be able to do X. And like, yeah, I can do X at the expense of doing many other things. Doing, like yeah. this is the priority I've chosen or the thing that I couldn't get out of. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that because she can paint, she can do everything else as, you know, a person without any injury or disability would be able to do. So, like, as we've made pretty clear, I think, and I, I feel like I can say we think, <laughs> yeah. it's yeah. important to take Frida's expressions of her pain as legitimate. And given her well-documented injuries, I'm somewhat incredulous how anyone could do anything else. I also find it unlikely that she could have repeatedly persuaded doctors to perform unnecessary surgeries. So from 1944 to 1946, Frida consulted many doctors and was very apprehensive about their advice. In 1946, she wrote to friends saying that her Mexican doctors were encouraging her to have surgery, but she wanted to consult an American doctor to see if it was really necessary. She wrote, all the bone doctors and orthopedists are of the opinion that surgery is necessary. I think it would be very dangerous since I'm very thin, tired, and a mess. 
So this suggests to me that far from seeking unnecessary surgeries, Frida had to be convinced that surgery would even truly benefit her. I also wanted to address the biographer's other accusation that Frida failed to follow doctor's orders. Frida did fail to follow doctor's orders. After her spinal surgery took place in 1946, she was ordered to live very quietly, to rest often. She was bedridden initially and then spent eight months in a corset. And Lupe Marin recalls that she attacked herself in frustration one night, opening her wounds, and that there are like various other similar stories of this. Frida also increasingly relied on drugs and alcohol, which I think we can kind of take as implicitly against her yeah. doctor's orders. The reaction of her coping mechanisms and her understandable reactions to her experiences is, as I've said, to kind of treat her as being to blame for her own suffering. This is inhumane. This is just also a nonsense thing to yeah. say because, like, it's clearly she has a response to her suffering and to be as a biographer, like, well, if she didn't respond to it, then she wouldn't be suffering. And I'm like, that doesn't make sense. Mm. Also, people just don't do what their doctors tell them to because, you know, they want to go out and live their lives, whether that's by, like, not staying in bed or, like, doing various mm. things that help them cope with it that may not be healthy for them physically. Like, yeah, and, and the correct way to respond to, like, patient noncompliance is to assess why they're unable able to comply with that advice and try to meet the needs that are clearly yeah. not being met. Yeah. yeah. Not to like dehumanize them and blame them for the fact that they're trying to recover from incredibly serious injuries. Yeah. Yeah. Not to mention the part where you were like you said the surgery seems to have been botched. Like can you fault someone for not following their doctor's orders after that? Yeah. Like obviously like, you it's would gone badly do something else. Have increasing distrust, distrust in yeah. the medical yeah, establishment. And, and Frida has seen many, many doctors by this point and as we've mentioned previously in like last episode, I'm not sure yeah. in this episode, a lot of her treatments just didn't really seem to be all that effective. Yeah. Like, of course, she's struggling. So I just wanted to note that it's part of a, I feel like, bigger problem with how her biographers talk about her experiences of pain and of disability. This is, I feel like, the most overt example of one just being completely obviously disgusting and a lot yeah. – of the rest of it was like quite difficult to articulate the problem with like particularly as someone who doesn't have a lot of knowledge about like disability studies or anything like that yeah but yeah there's like a lot of narratives that really center Frida's experiences of pain in kind of like a really exotifying way I like as you can see I don't really know how to talk about this but mm. like I just feel like it's something where obviously Frida's experiences as someone who had chronic pain, as a disabled woman, a very important part of yeah. her life and very important to people today who also experience those issues and, like, the ways in which her biographers talk about this is not yeah. good enough. Yeah. I guess in some ways when you talk about it being, like, weirdly exoticized, you see a kind of similar thing when people talk about artists with mental health issues. Yeah, yeah, that is yeah. very similar, actually, yeah. So, like, a lot of the names of Frida's, like, biographies or books about her, I feel kind of, like, convey this where, and I can't remember who, like, belongs to which book, like, yeah. who belongs to which book, but that'd be called, like, Frida Kahlo, Passion and Pain, or Frida Kahlo, Brush of Anguish and things like this that create this quite like sensationalized interaction between her like love for life but also she was suffering all the time i remember seeing someone talk about her like metaphorically having a paintbrush dipped in blood and things oh like God. that and it just was just so bad yeah yeah you get this kind of like 
weird thing where they'll combine the suffering and the art and be like mm. one of these led to the other yeah and they also like you know kind of create the spectacle for their own enjoyment mm. of Frida's experiences of pain and how it fueled her art in their opinion but then also when it comes to things like this like her day-to-day experience of trying to manage pain and things like that have absolutely no sympathy or ability to empathize with her and it's just yeah. it's just a mess it's really bad <laughs> It's one of the things that uh, Margaret Lindauer has a chapter in her book, which isn't a biography of Frida. It's like an analysis of basically some of the problematic narratives in biographies and other things talking about Frida, where she talks about this in depth. So, like, if you're like, that sounds like something interesting, but you guys clearly don't really have the vocabulary to talk about it, you're correct. I would advise going to that as a next step. But, yeah, that's about all I had to say about that. But I just thought it was important to go into in some depth. During the 1940s, Frida's career gained momentum and recognition. She received commissions and patrons, and she participated in cultural organizations and conferences and art projects and all kinds of things. She exhibited in a number of important group shows, such as the MoMA's 20 Centuries of Mexican Art and the MoMA's 20th Century Portraits and the Boston Institute of Art's Modern Mexican Painters. She was recognized as that kind of shows more quickly in the United States than in Mexico, but by the second half of the 1940s, she was being included in group exhibitions there as well. Art in Mexico was changing, so muralists were still painting, but that was no longer the dominant form of art, and foreign influences and like easel painting and things like that are seen as less suspicious and more acceptable. Was muralism then, was that like a more traditional Mexican art or was it just something that took up at some point? I don't think it was traditional. Like my understanding of muralism based just on the way that people talked about it in the context of Mm. Rita and Diego was that it was something that emerged as a reaction in particular to like early 20th century cultural forces in Mexico. Okay, yeah, yeah. And as those things have kind of changed and I guess is how revolutionary like fervor has kind of settled down a bit that form isn't really responding to the people's needs and interests as much and so it's like waned a bit the ministry of education opened the school of painting and sculpture in 1942 frida and diego were both registered as teachers frida very openly told other teachers at the school and students that she had no idea what teaching was about (laughs) Um, so one of her students guillermo monroy recalled her saying well kids let's get to work i'll be your so-called teacher I'm not any such thing. I only want to be your friend. I never have been a painting teacher, nor do I think I ever will be, since I'm always learning, which seems pretty great. I appreciate that honesty. Yeah. Yeah. So she said that they would all just paint together, and she was happy to make some observations of their paintings if they promised to do the same and make observations on her paintings, which sounds like an enormous confidence booster for, like, a young artist in Mexico to have Frida Kahlo be like, what do you think? Is it bad? You can tell me. (laughs) Yeah. 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 I mean, I feel like that's also genuinely, like, a good teaching technique. Be like, analyze what I'm doing and, like, give me Mm. some feedback. Like, Mm -hmm. that's going to help them. like, workshops are a real thing. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Her students loved her. They really responded to this way of teaching they found her to be very joyful very engaging and more like a friend or an older sister than a teacher she would take them out of the school to like markets and churches neighboring towns pyramids and things like that to look at and to paint after a few months she found it too taxing to travel to the school and so she invited the students to come to her home instead and Mm -hmm. she would continue to teach them there many were discouraged by the long commute to her house but four of them continued to go and they came to be known as Los Fritos. 
That's very good. I like it. Yes. She arranged for them to have the opportunity to paint a few public murals, the first of which was on the side of her own house, and she also introduced them to her political beliefs. The students eventually formed an organization of left-wing painters called the Young Revolutionary Artists. That would also be a massive confidence boost when Frida Kahlo is like, hey, do you guys want to paint the outside of my house? Yeah, Yeah, for sure. As mentioned, Frida had severe problems following her 1946 spinal operation. Frida was in hospital for much of 1950 and had several further operations operations on her spine. The incisions from these operations became infected and Frida had a continuous fever and was often vomiting. She was also having issues with her right leg. In January, she awoke to find the toes of her right foot were black on the ends and her doctors recommended amputation. Frida was desperate to avoid this, but eventually her right leg was amputated below the knee in 1953 and she relied on a wheelchair for the rest of her life. Frida was sometimes in good spirits during all of this. Her hospital room was lavishly decorated and she continued to paint the corsets that she wore. Um, so the photo of her painting a hammer and sickle onto her corset <laughs> while she's lying in bed dates from this time that you might have seen. I love that. And she also continued to paint with a special easel that was attached to the hospital bed when she was well enough to do so. She would have frequent visitors to the hospital and she described the mood in her hospital room as being like a fiesta. And they would joke and laugh and eat meals there and they would watch movies and gossip and generally, you know. hang out. On the other hand, Frida's addiction to painkillers and alcohol continued to worsen, and especially after the amputation, she became increasingly volatile and sometimes violent. For example, in one instance, she threw a glass bottle of water at Diego, who barely Mm. managed to miss being hit with it. Frida's sense of integrity and self-esteem seemed to have been greatly affected by the amputation, and she never really fully recovered from that experience. In 1953, Frida's friend, the photographer Lola Alvarez Bravo, decided to organize an exhibition of Frida's paintings. She said, I realized that Frida's death was quite near. I think that honors should be given to people while they are still alive to enjoy them, not when they are dead. So this is going to be Frida's first solo exhibition in Mexico. And she and Diego were very enthusiastic about this. But when the day of the exhibition opening came, Frida was so sick that her doctors forbade her from leaving her home. Instead of obeying that. Frida sent her four-poster bed to the gallery ahead of her, (laughs) and then just after the crowds had come in, an ambulance siren was heard outside, and Frida was carried in on a stretcher and placed in the bed. This night is generally treated as one of triumph for Frida, and it is wonderful that it was able to happen while she was still alive. 200 people greeted Frida and sang with her well into the night, and she was very happy, but she was also heavily drugged, Mm -hmm. and she had to work very hard to conceal her pain, and at one point had to be taken out onto the terrace because she was being mobbed by this crowd and she could hardly breathe. Mm -hmm. So it seems like a very overwhelming experience as well. And I I just wanted to mention that because it is one that people – I guess really focus on and I feel kind of plays into narratives that are constructed about her and her experiences with disability and so forth in a way that, again, I can't really put my finger on why, but make me a bit uncomfortable. Yeah, I guess that kind of narrative of like she overcame her disability and had this triumphant – Mm. Yeah. There's a, a photo that was taken of her while she was at this exhibition, and it's one that I've seen, you know, placed along text being like, and this was like Frida Kahlo's last triumph. And in my opinion, she's like visibly not struggling really with it yeah. in the photo, and it's quite a confronting photo. So, like, I just wanted, I guess, to be honest about how this experience was for her. On July 2nd, 1954, Frida took part in a communist demonstration, again against the orders of her doctors. And, like, to be clear, I fully support her making these decisions for her life. 
This was to be her last public appearance. Frida was suffering from pneumonia uh, at the time of the demonstration, and not long after that, on July 13th, 1954, she passed away. I'm still mad about the people who called her apolitical when literally, like, in her last moments, she's like, I'm going to go to this communist Mm. rally. That's important. Yeah. It remains unclear to this day what the cause of Frida's death was. Some people think that her death might have been a suicide or it could have been an accidental overdose or it could have been natural causes Mm -hmm. from her injuries. Frida spoke quite openly about her approaching death and she was intermittently suicidal in the last years of her life. She was in hospital multiple times in 1954 and it was rumored that this was due to suicide attempts. Diego remembers the night before she died, she had given him a ring for their 25th wedding anniversary, which was still some time away. And he asked her why. And she said, because I feel I'm going to leave you very soon. Mm. Nevertheless, Diego presents her as fighting to hold on to life mm. towards the end of her life. And many of her friends don't think that Frida's death would have been a suicide. I mean, it sounds likely if she's been very sick all of this time. We mm. know that in like the last weeks of her life, she had pneumonia, right? Yeah. Like, I would be happy to accept that this was illness or... Yeah, and like giving Diego the ring, for example, like... She's aware that she's not in good health. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The final entry in Frida's diary depicts a black angel rising into the sky, and underneath it are written the words, I hope the exit is joyful, and I hope never to come back, Frida. I hope to never come back is an interesting thing to say. I don't know if it is. Like, I feel like sometimes people sort of say those things, like, when they know that their death Mm. is coming. Yeah, and I understand it is quite common for people who have been sick for a while, whether they're, like, elderly or whatever the circumstances, to kind of have a sense yeah. yeah. But like, I think I'm going to die soon. And sometimes they're wrong. I know. Yeah. yeah. But, but also, yeah. yeah, some people have that, like, sense that they're going to die. And often, especially when you, like, talk to elderly people, mm. they, like, have a sense that they're ready for it. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, like, I, I am not going to try and make a conclusion about the cause of Frida's death. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. I thought it was notable enough that it was worth noting that that discussion takes place in scholarship. Yeah. And I also don't really want to try and make any kind of neat concluding statement about, like, you know, oh, Frida passed away, but, you know, we should remember that she loved life or Frida passed away, but she was ready and she was content with that or anything like that. Mm. You know, I I understand the impulse to do that. And like, I feel it too, but I think we just need to let that be the end and let it be messy and inconclusive, like a, a sadly early end to someone's life. Yeah. I think this is something we discussed, probably not on the podcast, but while working on the podcast and not recording, not Mm -hmm. infrequently, that we talk about people's lives and you kind of, when you're sitting down and talking about someone's life for an hour, you kind of have to create some kind of narrative. Yeah. But people's lives don't actually have narratives. Yeah. And especially when you get to the end, it's just kind of like... You have to then then treat the the death as some kind of like conclusion that has a moral attached to it and that's not... That's not how life actually is. Like, people just die. It's hard to escape that, but it's also not something that we consciously want to play into. Yeah. 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 That was the life of Frida Kahlo. We're going to talk about Frida's queerness in some depth, but did you guys want to say anything before that? Do you feel like the version of Frida that we've sort of discussed here today greatly differs from the impressions that you had about her before, or...? I sort of knew a like skeleton of Frida's life and the details that you have filled in made sense, but it's perfectly possible that if I had read someone else's story of Frida's life that had a different take on it, mm. I would have been like, yeah, that makes sense with the information that I had. Yeah. I mean, I guess but that- having said that everything you sort of said about like ableism and the way that like biographical narratives of Frida's life and Frida's disability talk about this, like 
That definitely rings true with the ways I've seen people talk about Frida. That it's got that kind of like inspiration porn mm, vibe about yeah. it often. We have a lot of picture books at my work, which is a library for our listeners, about Frida. And they almost all kind of have this story of Frida Kahlo was like a kid who liked, you know, some random hobbies that she had as a kid. And then she had polio and then she had this bus accident. But she loved to paint and painting was her thing and she could still become a famous painter even though she had these accidents. Mm. And that's basically the narrative of it's like Mm. her overcoming the disability and injury and everything. Mm. And it's really hard to talk about those things because, like, although I think that Frida was interested in art and may have painted anyway, had she not had that bus accident, you know, she did have the bus accident and she did then begin to paint seriously or in a new way yeah. whilst recovering from that. And she did depict her pain. Like, these are true things. Yeah. yeah. The, it's the meaning that people make out of them that is difficult. And like, it was it was difficult for me to address because, like, none of the basic facts they were telling me were ones that I felt were wrong. Yeah. You're just like, yeah. the way you've put these together tells yeah. a weird narrative. Yes. I mean, I think in a lot of ways it's like, you know, how when we were discussing the bus crash and there was this factoid that I think Herrera made a big deal of about how she had gone back to get her coach yeah. and so they yeah. bought the next bus. And it's the similar kind of thing where it's like you could make a big deal about the fate of if she hadn't had this accident, would she have taken up painting while she was recovering? I think I actually told you that when we weren't recording, so that is definitely a thing we have discussed. And if you're listening to this and you're like, <laughs> I don't remember that being the first episode, that's why. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. No, that's okay. Yeah. I think it's okay to include it anyway. Yeah. It's a like, example. I think, yeah, it's very easy to kind of be like, all of these things were fate. If she hadn't had this, she wouldn't have had that. But like... You can only make so much meaning out of that. Mm. Yeah. So yeah. when I was putting together my notes on this, um, like as I mentioned at the start of last episode, the more I researched, the less I felt I knew mm. about Frida. And so I was kind of faced with this challenge between wanting to make like some kind of cohesive content mm. for people that wasn't entirely stripped of Frida's personality, but yeah. also, you know, aware that I am also constructing a version of Frida. I don't yeah. know how I've done it that, but I hope that I have done okay. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about how Frida had sex with women sometimes now. So we've talked a lot about the difficulties in talking about the sources and like the difficulties that sources themselves have and so forth and how they really form how we talk about Frida. And I don't think that's truer anywhere than when we discuss her sexuality. (laughs) Many of the issues that we've already talked about with like primary and secondary sources also hold true here. So last episode, we already saw how the ambiguities of primary sources and the unideal way in which they're discussed in secondary sources combined to lead to confusion talking about Frida's relationship with her gym teacher and the Ministry of Education worker, Mm -hmm. uh, for example. And also, in particular, once we start talking about Frida's sexuality, this is exacerbated by a deep discomfort with and dismissal of Frida's attraction to women Mm -hmm. from both those who knew her during her life and from scholars who write about her today. So I'll just give you like a few indicative quotes. So Alejandro said of Frida's queerness that, quote, her great mission for life was manifested as love for animals, plants, nature, her good friends, women or men. If there were tints of homosexuality, which I did not see or feel, it must have been a desperate search for life or to feel pleasure. And Olga Campus, who was one of Frida's friends later in her life, said that Diego loved to talk about lesbians. He even bragged about Frida's homosexuality, and Frida told me that she was attracted to dark nipples on a woman and repelled by pink ones. <laughs> <laughs> What a specific fact to know about us. I know. Right? <laughs> I don't think I know about like the nipple color preferences of any other person on the planet. 
Yeah. <laughs> I do know that thing that you're meant to like match your lipstick to your nipple color, apparently. Oh, I have heard reason. that. I'm yeah. Like, hmm. <laughs> Iron's just looking down her top. Chris, now. I have to look at their nipples. <laughs> I am still mid-quote. Sorry, carry That's on. okay, I did this. Um, so Olga went on to say, Despite this, I do not think she was a true homosexual. If she had sex with other women, I believe it would not have been for love or attraction, but to satisfy her frustrated eroticism and vanity. She was always surrounded by more women than men. It would have been easier. You often see that thing where people are like, okay, they had sex with women, but they weren't a true homosexual. Mm. They were like compounding factors. They had a different personal reason for having sex with women that I've decided doesn't count, unlike Mm. the ones which do count. Yeah. I'd also like to follow up that with she was surrounded by many more women than men, which makes it easy. So would the vast majority of women be, I feel like. That's true. Most women socialize more with women. Yeah. Is this person just like, oh, it's easy for any woman to have sex with women. It's true. You too can have (laughs) sex with women. (laughs) Yeah. But what was that thing she said to satisfy her own eroticism and vanity? vanity. Yeah, yeah, I don't even – what does that mean? I um, can't even understand what she's trying to say here. So I feel like the secondary scholarship also kind of provides us with these reasons why Frida's attraction to women doesn't count. Mm. Um, so I'll read you a quote by Herrera, surprise, surprise, and then we'll maybe talk about them all together. So Herrera – also does this. Herrera claimed that Frida generally preferred men to women, but increasingly had relationships with women as she got older. And Herrera believes that this is because, quote, her physical frailty made heterosexual intercourse difficult. (laughs) Um, We'll just put it in that, maybe. (laughs) Okay. There's Um, a lot to say there, but we'll leave it. Grimberg, who's another scholar who writes about Frida, said, Carla gradually took lovers of both genders in order to avoid feelings of emptiness. So, yeah, like Irene says, there's this real drive to provide reasons why Frida might have... Mm. Like, yeah, she she was totally having sex with women, but let me tell you why she did that. The answer isn't that she was attracted to It's because she loved life and didn't want to feel empty and because she was vain and women were right there, so it was easy. And because she... Couldn't have sex with men? Yes. Thank you for the summary. So I feel like this really interacts with depictions of her that are very ableist. I mean, especially the thing where they said, like, she slept with women because she couldn't, like, Yeah, so I, like, feel like that must just come out of this really reductive view of what sex is between men and women. Yeah. I guess what is being said there is having, like, penis in vagina sex would have become physically difficult for her, which Mm might have been true. Yeah. Um, And it did actually make me think of that whole thing about how she said that to Diego, like, a condition was that they didn't have sex. Like, maybe it was like, I don't want to have certain types of sex anymore. But, you know, like, there are a lot of sexual acts that she still could have engaged in with men that would not yeah. have been as physically like rigorous or you know would have yeah yeah most mm. of the things that like she could do with a woman she yeah. could also, also do, do with, with a man exactly yeah. exactly and like also you know i feel like if we're saying that having like intercourse with a man would have been off the table for her like there are also things she could do with women that would have presumably also been off the table yeah yeah for her so yeah i think that was just like from a weird view of what sex is like for a woman with a man or a woman. Yeah. yeah. Um, I feel like that was someone there being like, well, it would have been uncomfortable for her in the missionary position. <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> yes, men are out altogether now. Sorry. <laughs> but yeah, so there's like also these quotes about it being to satisfy her vanity and things like that. There are like a lot of weird narratives about Frida and herself 
perception. Mm, yeah. You know, like flashback to the part where we were talking about the scholarly ableism where Herrera talked about how she was narcissistic yeah. and things like that. Um, and these kind of all crop up here yeah. as mm-hmm. well. I feel like that, like, vanity thing is something that I've seen before in discussions of, like, women having sex with women or, like, women being attracted to women. This sort of idea that this attraction is, like, eroticizing similarity as opposed to women Mm. having sex with men, which is, like, two complementary things coming together. Oh, God, vomit. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Which is just this, like, sort of weird implication that it's, like, and that's almost, like a weird and deviant thing to yeah, do. Yeah, it's almost yeah. like that, like autogynophilia. Yeah, I, I think that gets said that. towards trans women, but yeah. like, like the woman's body that you're fetishizing is your girlfriend. And, yeah, and that's not actually weird at all. Also, like, uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's like considering your all versions of this are terrible. <laughs> considering your girlfriend to be like a sexual being is not fetishizing your girlfriend. You know, <laughs> also like thinking boobs are hot when you got boobs is just not it's that not fetishizing weird. yourself Calm either. Down. <laughs> yeah. Um, like, is it weird when people think legs are hot, although everyone has legs? <laughs> no. That's not I guess, eroticizing but I guess, similarity. Like, I guess that's different because all women shave their legs and all men don't, so, you know. And women have shapely feminine legs. Yeah. <laughs> and also some men in Pompeii. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Anyway. Yeah. What nonsense. What homophobic. Yeah. Nonsense. Homophobic also nonsense. That thing like <laughs> we're not done. <laughs> I'm not done. I have to talk about the emptiness as well. Yeah. It's this like the only reason you would have sex with women is because you're like bleak and empty inside. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. there really is yeah, just like, every single one of those statements has so much to unpack and like at the bottom of all of them is just this terrible understanding of women and women's sexuality and like bisexual women and lesbians and it's just terrible it's terrible so this is the scholarship you were faced with yes it was you have no idea what i've been through (laughs) so i'm going to go through some of the women that frida is linked to romantically but i also wanted to note like a kind of interesting problem that came up as i was doing this Hmm. so you know you're all familiar anyone who is interested in queer women's history is familiar with what i'm going to call the harold they're lesbians problem (laughs) (laughs) so You know, it'll be the thing where we'll be talking about a historical woman who had, like, a suspiciously close female friend or two or seven, Hmm. and scholars will, like, either ignore or actively argue against the possibility of them having been lovers. Yeah. With Frida, we kind of have the opposite problem. So every scholar, literally everyone... I read, acknowledged to some degree that Frida was bisexual, and many mentioned names of women that she had supposedly had relationships with, but whenever I tried to look into this in more detail, I found virtually nothing. In a passage of Zamora's biography, for example, in which she's detailing Frida's affairs, and she's listed the names or, like, some further information about, like, half a dozen men, she then says, there were also a number of trysts with women. And that is the only mention of this in the entire book. Okay. Yeah. What women? When? How yes, do we know? Who? <laughs> Tell us more. Yeah. So I did manage to find some information, but I have been red stringing this on my wall for months. <laughs> I mean, I guess to some extent, like, it might be that Zamora had, like, no information about what women she was involved with, but a bunch of, like, quotes from her friends or whatever that were like, yeah, Frida was attracted to women. And yeah. she was like, I guess that did happen. 
But at that point, you should say, this is attested to by my interview with so-and-so, and and although I don't know any more identities, it's clear that this was something that was commonly understood about her. Yeah. Or something like that. That's how to deal with that properly. Mm. And Zamora's biography, like, is not a particularly in-depth one, to be clear, Um, and there are other scholars who I relied on much more, so I would kind of buy that for Zamora, not for all of them. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Once it becomes a pattern. Mm. First, we're going to talk about Maria Felix and Dolores Del Rio. So these were two Mexican actresses who were contemporaries of Frida's and friends of hers and Diego's. Mm -hmm. Um, So Margaret Lindau mentions Maria and Dolores as the only named women with whom Carlo reportedly had sexual relationships. Unfortunately, she doesn't give us a source or further information (laughs) and just mentions this as an aside. Why are all these scholars like this? I don't know. Lindauer, I was particularly frustrated because Lindauer, if you recall me mentioning, wrote like a very critical book about the other biographies. And like, unfortunately, she didn't do a convenient chapter where she talked about Frida's desire for women, which would have been very convenient for me. And Corey likewise states, among the names that have been mentioned but not confirmed are several women who were also reputed to have been Rivera's lovers, including Maria Felix and the actress Dolores Del Rio. So, how do we know this? Is it true? (laughs) Regarding Dolores Del Rio, our major piece of evidence, as far as I can tell, seems to be a painting called Two Nudes in a Forest, which Frida painted in 1939 and gifted to Dolores, who, as I mentioned, was a friend of hers. The painting depicts a light-skinned woman lying with her head in the lap of a dark-skinned woman and they're in a forest, and they're nude. Are these women Frida and Dolores, or, like, unclear, or...? Unclear. Okay. In her interview with Olga Campus, Frida said that she painted a portrait of Dolores, mm-hmm. but as we're not aware of any such portrait, and this is the only painting in Dolores's possession of Frida's, it's possible that this is the one she's referring to. Okay. Um, I think, actually, Dolores did have another painting, but it was of, like, some fruit or something. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, like, yeah. obviously not that one. <laughs> Dolores is not a well fruit. No. <laughs> yeah, so it's possible that these two women either are Frida and Dolores, although, like, neither of these women are recognisably Frida, and mm-hmm. Frida's paintings of herself tend to be very recognisably Frida. Yeah. yeah. Or that it's just kind of, like, a general scene of kind of female homoeroticism that she's gifting to her very good female friend. Yeah, yeah. like, that seems pretty gay. It does. But that's all I know about that. If there are further sources yeah. that other scholars have, I don't have them. Maria Felix was one of the women Diego had an affair with. So people differ on how Frida felt about the affair, whether whether she was like hurt or amused by it or like mm-hmm. pretended she was fine with it or whatever. And Herrera says it's typical of Frida that her own relationship with Maria Felix continued during this period and after. And Herrera also tells us that Frida often slept with women that Diego was having an affair with. In the interest of giving you all the information I have about that, she mm-hmm. quotes an interview with Frida and Diego's friend Raquel Tibble, who said she consoled herself by cultivating the friendship of women with whom Diego had amorous relationships. That's Uh, quite different to sleeping with them. Yep. I don't know why that's what Herrera says. I Uh, see what you mean about Herrera kind of putting things side by side as though they mm. lead one from the other, whereas, like, she cultivated the friendship does not mean she had sex with them. Maybe she did have sex with them, but that is not evidenced by that quote. Yeah. No. So, like, either Herrera has made up some lesbianism that isn't there, which seems unlikely, or there's more 
information in the sources mm. that she did not give us. Yeah. I don't know. But yeah, none of the biographers who mentioned Maria provide any more information about this. And I frankly have no idea if this one is a rumor or a, f- a fact that has mm-hmm. been verified by someone. But you just haven't yeah. got the verification. Yeah. Mm. Then there's Jacqueline Lamber, who is Andre Breton's wife. Uh, yeah, I remember oh, okay. this. Oh, yes. <laughs> As I mentioned, Frida did not like Andre yeah. because he was a bit of a douchebag. Yeah, um, he sounds oh, yeah. like it. He was extremely specific about the rules for true consequences. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Obnoxious. But Frida was very close with and got along very well with Jacqueline Lambert. So Jacqueline described their relationship as very close, intimate. Okay. And we have a letter from Frida to Jacqueline where she describes the difficulty of leaving her behind in Paris, saying, I've not forgotten you. The nights are long and difficult. The water, the boat, and the pier, and the departure – That was making you so small to my eyes, imprisoned in that round window that you looked at in order to keep me in your heart. She goes on to say, you also know that everything my eyes see and everything that I touch with my own self is Diego. You felt it. For that reason, you allowed the boat to carry me from La Havre, where you never said goodbye to me. So like that, I acknowledge, is not very much to go on. Yeah. But it does seem interesting to me that, you know, you have this quote about them having clearly a very intense attachment and her finding it difficult to leave Jacqueline behind and kind of this comparison to like you know that there was like a place in my life that was occupied by Diego and that is why you let me go yeah yeah like she's clearly drawing a parallel between Jacqueline and Diego and also like even just parting with someone and saying the nights are long and difficult Mm -hmm. I feel like that implies like doesn't necessarily affirm but implies a sexual element to their relationship Mm -hmm. It certainly implies something. Like, I don't think I message my platonic friends like, I miss you so much, the night is long and lonely without you. Yeah. Mm, yeah, that would be weird. <laughs> yeah. Like, no, I think about it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Where that's like a normal thing you would message a lover, right? Yeah. 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 Then there's Georgia O'Keefe. Oh. So, Georgia O'Keefe was an American artist who Frida met when she and Diego were in New York in late 1931 to early 1932. If you recall from the first episode, they moved to America. They were in San Francisco for a bit. They went back to Mexico. They moved to America again. They're in New York. Then they went to Detroit and then went back to New York. My thing I remember about this is that New York was Frida's favorite place. So I guess I would buy that she had a lover there. (laughs) Yeah. Well, like specifically, I think it was her favorite place because she had like friends. Yeah. 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 So Lucien Block remembers when she was living with Frida and Diego in Detroit. One morning at breakfast, Diego said to her, you know, Frida's a homosexual, don't you? (laughs) (laughs) That does kind of align with the quote before about how Diego was like obsessed with lesbians. Like, it sounds like he's a bit like what's better she about kind it? of yeah. being a weird edge yeah. about it. Diego would watch so much lesbian porn if he were alive today. I am sure he would. Yeah. Anyway, he went on to tell Lucien how Frida had flirted with Georgia O'Keefe in a gallery in New York. And in March of 1933, before she and Diego returned to New York, Frida wrote to Georgia in a letter in which she said, I thought of you a lot and never forgot your wonderful hands and the color of your eyes. If you are still in the hospital when I come back, I'll bring you flowers, but it is so difficult to find the ones I would like for you. I would be so happy if you could write me even two words. I like you very much, Georgia. We don't know anything about this meeting But we do know that it took place because in April of 1933, Frida wrote to another friend, O'Keefe was in hospital for three months. She didn't make love to me that time, I think on account of her weakness. Too bad. (laughs) Well, Well, that definitely implies that she would on other occasions have made love to her. Yeah, like she didn't make love to me that time. Clearly suggests that they did for other times, right? Well, it was at least on the table. Like, you know, it was a possibility. (laughs) I mean, again, you don't write to someone like, I miss your wonderful hands in like a... (laughs) Non-erotic sense. I miss your yeah. wonderful hands and the way that you always 
cut your fingernails short. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like... <laughs> <laughs> then there's Frida's relationship with the expressionist painter Sonia Sekula. So this takes a little bit of background to explain kind of like what our source is for this. So in 1954, when Frida died, Diego decided that he would leave La Casa Azul to the Mexican people and have it converted into a museum. A friend of the couple's, Carlos Pelica, designed the exhibition and chose some of their possessions to put on display, and the rest of it was sealed away. Shortly before he died, Diego asked his friend and executor, Dolores Almedo, to not open his personal archives until 15 years after his death. He died in 1957. 15 years came and went, but the archive wasn't opened until after Dolores died in 2002. Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. Very recent. Yeah. So in 2010, a book called Frida Kahlo, Her Photos was published, and it is like centered around a lot of photos that were found in La Casa mm-hmm. There isn't really like a clear differentiation between what was Frida's and what was Diego's in these. Oh, um, yeah. So, you know, like, it's just, I mean, like, they had been of... married for 25 yeah, years. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like that would be Makes weird. Sense. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, like it's a bunch of photos that were in that house. Also, we uncover a lot of other sort of miscellaneous yeah. materials as you might expect, and this includes, like, letters and things like that. So when this book was published, like, it's primarily about the photos, but it also mentions letters and other material that we didn't previously know about. Mm -hmm. And so I'm going to read you a quote from that book now. Another passion was shared with now-forgotten expressionist painter Sonia Sekula, who appears standing at her easel. Her letters are filled with longing for Carlo. Writing back to Carlo from New York on May 12th, 1945, Sekula reminisced, I felt you as swiftly as a feather as a music quite interrupted by doors and windows, as somebody very fragile and very honest. Okay. Yeah. Now that quote, frankly, means very little to me. Yeah, yeah. I feel like you would need to know more about the people and the relationship, just like Mm. the way they talked to understand exactly what she's communicating there. But, like, the book does seem to be pretty clear that, like, yep, these letters clearly evidence a relationship between these women. Mm -hmm. But we don't really know without reading the letters, and we don't have the letters. Yeah. And then there's Josephine Baker. <laughs> my nemesis. To be clear, I don't mean that Josephine Baker is my nemesis. I mean that uncovering proof of the relationship between Josephine Baker and Frida Kahlo, which people love to claim existed, is my nemesis. This is Alice's episode now. <laughs> um, so I'm just going to briefly explain who Josephine Baker is. Yes. Um, you want to know more about her. We do have an episode. But, you know, like, I don't expect everyone to pause and listen to that right now. <laughs> so let me explain that Josephine Baker was an African-American woman who moved to Paris in the 1920s, where she made her living as a singer and a dancer. She was also a member of the French resistance during World War II, and she was involved in the civil rights movement. And she was also bisexual. Those are kind of her greatest hits. (laughs) Um, Anyway, yeah, as Alice has said, it's very common for people to say that Frida and Josephine had a relationship. And Alice looked into that for her episode on Josephine, which you can go and listen to if you would like. Would you like to tell us a bit about that experience? It was a very, very frustrating experience, and it haunts me to this day. (laughs) (laughs) So generally, when you see this claim made, if you do manage to trace it back to a source, it takes you back to one of two sources. One is the movie Frida, which came out in 2002. And in that movie, Frida is depicted in Paris having basically a one-off sexual encounter, I think, with a woman who is not explicitly named in the film, but is pretty clearly Josephine Baker, based on the context and everything. And her, like, appearance. Yeah, she's pretty clearly Josephine Baker, and they have a one-off sexual encounter in the movie. And that seems to be kind of the source of public 
assumptions that they did have a relationship. The other source that's often cited for their relationship is Josephine's son, Jean-Claude Baker's biography of Josephine, Mm -hmm. which does not mention Frida at all. But Wait, so people just, like, cite this book, and when you look in the book, there is no mention of Frida? Yeah, so that movie I mentioned is fictional. When people do give a citation from a work of nonfiction, it is usually that book or they'll say, you know, Jean-Claude Baker said this after his mother's death or something like that. It's not in the book. I have watched a few interviews with him that I can get my hands on and not seen it in any of those. So, like, as far as I'm aware, we do not have a primary source for this and it's basically just born out of the fact that they did meet. We do have a photo of them together it looks like a pretty formal meeting like they're just like shaking hands like they've just been introduced basically they didn't meet they were both bisexual and people really like the idea yeah so a couple of notes on that first of all that photo of them together i just wanted to note that generally this is attributed to one that was taken in paris when Frida was there in 1939, yeah. having a bad time with the Surrealists. But Martha Zamora includes it in her book and actually says it was taken in 1952, or circa 1952 actually, in Mexico. I yeah. have not been able to attribute this photo. I don't understand where these competing understandings come from. I also tried, and I could not track down an original source of this photo. Also, regarding Julie Taymor's biopic of Frida that came out in 2002. I also wanted to mention that Tamil's film is based on Herrera's book. Like, it's specifically an adaptation of Herrera's book. Mm -hmm. And Herrera does not mention Josephine Baker in the book. I also tried to just find, like, any mention of this rumour that predated the movie, Mm -hmm. and I could not. And so my current assumption is that that is the source of this rumour. Yeah, that's my understanding as well. The reason we mention this is because it is so widely claimed. Like, it's essentially been canonised as part of Frida's legend. I have even, like, now seen this in published books, and I think it's just come out of the fact that it's said often enough that people no longer think it's something they need to check a source for. That's yeah. like, that's a fact we all know, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. exactly why people say that Sappho was a school teacher. Yeah. Just saying. <laughs> um, <clears throat> there are many articles, as I've mentioned online, like, not peer-reviewed articles, to be clear, just, like, medium articles or whatever. Mm. And in 2019, a play was put on at the Matcha Theatre in LA called Frida Stroke of Passion, which depicted her relationship with Josephine Baker. The two were also depicted as lovers in a 2020 episode of Lovecraft Country. Mm -hmm. So this is just kind of understood to be fact now. I have also actually seen this in... One biography of Frida, Ganit Ankori's biography of Frida, which made me very upset because I was really rooting for her because she's like <laughs> one of the better ones. So that book was published in 2013. It was by mm-hmm. far the most recent one I read. And it includes the statement, another name that comes up is that of the African-American performer Josephine Baker. No citation given, very noncommittal. Well, like, she's not wrong. The name does come it up. It does come <laughs> up. But it really, like, disappointed me, to be honest, that it's in there without any further clarification mm. because I am sure that people will use that as a source now. Yeah. 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 Uh, so there's that. That kind of sucks. <laughs> yeah. I guess, actually, I also wanted to kind of make a bit of a distinction between this rumor and that of the rumors about, like, Maria Felix and Dolores Del mm-hmm. So as I've mentioned, you know, this – when we try to find a primary source for that rumor – goes nowhere and we I think reasonably can assume it is attributed to the movie. Yeah. That's not the case with Maria and Dolores. I, as I think I've kind of conveyed, don't know the original source of this, but it goes back 
to biographies that are old enough that I kind of assume that it does ultimately come from a primary source. Mm-hmm. It does come from like someone who knew Frida or someone who knew someone who knew someone who knew someone who knew Frida. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. So it's like, I heard that this was going on. Now, obviously that proves nothing mm-hmm. at all, but I do think that there's a difference between that kind of origin for a rumor and the Josephine Baker one. Yeah. And like the former results in a question mark we don't know we can't say this is true and the latter it is reasonable to say this did not happen yeah i guess it's the distinction between a rumor that was going around during frida's life yeah and a rumor which appeared for the first time in 2002 yeah Yeah. one of the things that i find frustrating with frida and josephine is that like we know they met because we do have that photograph of them meeting but we do not even know if they spoke beyond hi i'm josephine bacon nice to meet you i'm frida carlo like it's not like some of these other women you've mentioned where we're not sure of the exact nature of the relationship, but we know they were close or something like mm. that. Like, we don't even know if they ever had mm. a conversation. And I find that very frustrating. Yeah. I think also, like, what gets me, and you do see it sometimes in, like, sort of pop queer history kind of things, there's this assumption that if you put two women in the same room who are attracted to women and they're famous, they Mm. will have had sex. It's like the conversation which we have had about, like, when Oscar Wilde and Walt Whitman met. Yeah. And, like, I think that we joked at the time that, like, maybe they had sex. Well, we specifically, like, debunked this. Yeah. 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 But there are definitely articles that kind of don't necessarily be like, yes, they did have sex, but that they like insinuate that they could have imply. And yeah, it's just kind of the implication that well, if two queer person who are attracted to the other person's gender meet, surely they'd have sex. There is a bit more to it than that with Walt Whitman and Oscar Wilde. Oscar was weirdly into him. He was weirdly into him, but like, yeah. (laughs) In one of our two episodes on Oscar Wilde, I talk about like why I was inclined to view that as like questionable at best. Uh, Yeah. I'll that if you want to. Yeah. It's hard. (laughs) But yeah, I just feel like there's that tendency to see two queer people and be like, well, they were here, so they were having sex. Mm. And I'm sure we've talked before and people talk all the time, just in general, about the tendency to like hypersexualized queerness mm. in general. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, particularly absolutely. as Frida's a queer woman of colour and so is yeah. Josephine. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Josephine's like career was built a lot around like the sexualization of black women. And like obviously that's very complicated and we talked about in our episode on her but like that was just a big part of her public image. Yeah. The last of Frida's lovers or potential lovers that I want to talk about is Chavela Vargas. So we have also talked about Chavela before. In this case Irene did an episode on her a while ago so like for the fifth time there's another episode (laughs) if you want to i'll just also give you a little bit of background into who chavela was so she was born in costa rica in 1919 and moved to mexico at the age of 14 to become a singer she became a significant figure in the bohemian club scene in mexico city and her performances were quite transgressive in their open depiction of lesbian desire and in Chavela's assumption of masculinity through her clothing and the types of songs that she sang and her refusal to change the gendered pronouns in her lyrics. So in her memoirs and in an interview that appears on the special features for the DVD of the movie Frida and like okay. in various yeah. other interviews, Chavela discusses her relationship with yeah. Frida. And so, like, as Chavela tells it, in the early 1940s, when Chavela was in her early 20s and not yet famous, and Frida was in her late 30s, Chavela was invited to a party at La Casa Azul, 
and Frida invited her to stay overnight as she lived far away, and they began a relationship after this. So Chavella would often stay at Frida's house, and she also mentions like singing to Frida while she painted and things like that. In the interview, in the special features, Chavella said, It was love at first sight. It was dazzling, but not of this world. It was a light from another dimension, from another planet. To look at her face and her eyes, I thought that she wasn't a being from this world. Her joined eyebrows were a swallow in flight, and I sensed that I could love this being with the purest love in the world. Chavella was just like this all the time, like oh. when she met women. Right? I respect Chavella. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I do want to note that the exact nature of the relationship between the two of them is somewhat a matter of academic controversy. So Anna Alonzo Minuti has a book chapter where she talks about how Chavella like constructed her lesbian identity. Mm-hmm. It's quite good. And this includes, obviously, as a big part of it, how she talks about Frida. And when the co-director of a 2017 documentary about Chavella heard that she was researching this, she wrote to Alonzo Minuti and said, like, hey, have you been able to find any proof that Chavella and Frida even met? Because I sure couldn't. And Alonzo Minuti makes clear in her book chapter that, like, no, she does not have this proof. And she says, while Chavella repeatedly professed that there was a reciprocal love between herself and Frida in her autobiography and in multiple interviews, it should be understood that in this chapter I'm not interested in establishing the veracity of that claim. So that's, like, not what her work is about. There is a photograph, allegedly, of Frida and Chavella together. I'm going to make it the, like, image for this episode. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So in this photograph, Frida and another woman are, like, lying on the grass together, and Frida's head is on the other woman's torso. They're both laughing. There's a guitar in the background. Yeah. The photograph actually comes from Frida's archives at La Casa Azul, and it was first published in the book Frida Kahlo, Her Photos, in 2010. In that book... The woman who isn't Frida is listed as unidentified. In 2015, an exhibition of Frida's photos at the Throckmorton Gallery in New York credited the image to Nicholas Murray, who was a photographer mm-hmm. that Frida knew and had an affair with, and identified the woman as Chavella. So Nicholas Murray's daughter has said that the photo was not taken by her father. Oh, okay. I don't know how she can be conclusive about this, but, like, I don't think it's impossible that she could be. And it's unclear how the identity of this woman was ascertained. Alonzo Minuti is clear that she doesn't view this as conclusively true. I also want to mention that there is a letter that goes around from Frida to someone else in which she talks about Chavella, and it's the source of that quote of Frida saying, like, I wouldn't hesitate to undress in front of her. I wanted to mention this because I thought people might be aware of it, but I also want to make it clear that I'm not viewing it as admissible evidence in this case because the authenticity of that letter is disputed quite Mm -hmm. credibly. So I just wanted to mention that because, like, I'm sure someone is aware of it who's listening to this and is like, ah, but, like, no, 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 this is deliberate that I'm ignoring it. (laughs) And so, you know, like, I am not inclined to view Chavella as a liar, yeah. I feel that probably her account is true. I don't think it's impossible that, say, she knew Frida and Frida was important to her, but maybe their relationship was not reciprocated. Yeah. And I wanted to mention this because I think that the cases of Josephine and Chavella form interesting counterpoints to each other mm. with also the context of all this other stuff we've talked about. Yeah. So for Josephine, we have proof that they met and nothing else except rumors that we can't locate the origin of. Yeah. Yeah. And for Chavella, we kind of have the opposite situation where we have this whole detailed story, but no how proof that they met, except a photo that is of dubious but, origin. But Chavella, yeah. yeah. At least the photo of Josephine and Frida is of Josephine it and Frida. It is, yeah. yeah. I mean, I say that only because I've looked at it and been like, yeah, that's Josephine and Frida. But I don't like, know its source. It's I Josephine mean, and Frida. You recognize them, I, yeah. But yeah. if that's the case, 
I ask this as a person who cannot recognize people to save my life. Can't we just look at a photo of Chavella and this photo of Frida and this woman and know if it's the same person? Well, I think, like, you can see her face clearly, but she's laughing. Her face Uh is, like, distorted by. Yeah, my mouth being open, etc. Yeah. yeah. So, like, I did this obviously when I was like, "What?" I like Google image Shella and held this photo up, and I was like, "I." It's like that could say. be her. Yeah. Yeah. So again, yeah, we don't know. Even as a rumor, even supposing that it's not true, I think there's greater value in a rumor from the mouth of one of the mm. people involved. Yeah, I mean yeah. that does still tell you something about how they understood themselves or how they wanted themselves to be presented, even yeah. if it's not necessarily exactly what occurred. Mm. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that having Chavella's words as a source on Frida are very valuable. I mean, do we and I can't remember this from episode on Chavella and maybe you will, Irene. Do we have a reason to disbelieve Chavala? Is she the sort of person who, like, said things about her life that weren't true or were to create an image rather than being factual often? Off the top of my head, the kinds of things that Chavala would, like, lie or exaggerate about were the kinds of things that were giving her, like, a kind of macho womanizing reputation. I mean, I feel like which, I slept with Frida Kahlo does. But she I very much get, frames mm. her Frida, her relationship with Frida Kahlo as her kind of, it's not putting her in, like, a position of power in this relationship. Uh, okay. There's no yeah, kind of the, womanizing aspect. It's like, I learned from Frida how to be a queer Mexican woman kind oh, of. Oh, okay. Yeah, the tone of it is absolutely not, hey, I got to bang Frida Kahlo. Like, okay. absolutely not. Okay. And the way she talks about it is just so emotional earnest and intimate like yeah like it totally could be a lie but i feel like Mm. it's probably not okay and like as we've established we're saying we can't find evidence that they met but we've already seen a wide variety of things that are just kind of hard to find the kind of solid facts we would like to find when researching someone like that Mm. photo of josephine and frida where we don't know what year it's from or like yeah yeah this photo of Frida and this woman who may or may not be Chevella. Like, obviously things are just a bit murky. Yeah. And, like, I also think that part of the reason why that's the case is because a lot of this evidence that does exist just Mm. isn't really mentioned in the literature I read. And to some degree that's clearly because Frida's queerness just hasn't been viewed as something that's worthy of discussion. Mm. Yeah. And this is obviously – like, something that we would think differently about. But I do think it's especially strange in this case, given how integral discussions of, like, other marginalizations that Frida experienced are to our discussions about her, you know, so her experience as a disabled person or as a woman or as Mexican, yeah, um, you know, like, it's not like Frida is one of those people where it's like, hey, just focus on the work. Like, her personal life shouldn't be important. Like, her personal yeah. life's kind of the whole deal to a lot of people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. And, you know, like, people are very happy to discuss her sexuality and her sex life Mm. with men in depth but all of a sudden like there's this reticence when it comes to these women and like i wonder why the answer (laughs) is homophobia yeah Yeah, i mean we've even specifically said that you could critique some of the scholarship about her work for focusing too heavily on her personal life and failing to consider a political angle so like in that context to focus perhaps too much on her personal life and her sex life and whatever but to ignore an aspect of it, like, yeah, clearly mm. homophobia. Yeah. Like, the reason why some of this isn't really in the scholarship is also down to what information is available mm. then, yeah. to be yeah. clear. So, like, I mentioned how some of this evidence is still emerging, and therefore it's sort of understandable how it hasn't yet been fully synthesized into, like, biographies, mm. into our picture of Frida. But as this information becomes accessible, the possibility to do a major reappraisal of Frida – Mm. and our understanding of her as a person and of her work 
becomes possible and like I think it badly needs to be done so a lot of the information about Frida's sexuality and like these specific relationships probably will remain unclear forever yeah but it would greatly benefit our studies of Frida Kahlo if we could take all of these scraps and put them into a cohesive picture you know in which we could both affirm what we do know for sure which is some stuff but also acknowledge what we have to understand as rumors yeah 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 Yeah. so chavella in her memoirs has her own analysis of frida's life and work and like Mm -hmm. what that means to her as you Mm -hmm. talked about a bit and in your episode a lot but like a bit (laughs) yeah Yeah. and like i i'm not gonna go into a whole new analysis of frida's life now i'll put those things in our sources and you can read them yourself if you want let us know if you have trouble getting hold of them But I wanted to give a brief example. So in 1940, Frida painted self-portrait with cropped hair. So in it, Frida is sitting in a chair. She's wearing a men's suit and she's cut off all her hair. She's holding a pair of scissors. And Herrera reads this painting as a depiction of her grief over her recent divorce from Diego and kind of generally describes it with words like Frida being lonely, the painting being vengeful the painting being Mm. macabre and so forth but chavella has a very different reading of the painting she finds it a positive example of the transgression of gender norms and of questioning social conventions Mm -hmm. and therefore you know whether or not frida and chavella ever met or had sex or whatever i found chavella's work on frida a very refreshing change from herrera and sort of the general status quo that she represents yeah um and this is true yeah like whether they met or not i think that as you've already said, Chiarella's perspective as a gender-transgressing lesbian who was a contemporary of Frida's is still very valuable. Yeah. Yeah. So to return to Josephine Baker, obviously to some extent people are always going to say sensationalistic things about yeah. historical people on the internet, and I think we're just going to have to make our peace with that <laughs> as hard as it is to do. But I, I do think that the tenacity of this rumor goes deeper than that for queer people. Mm. Um, so Carmen Phillips wrote an article for Autostraddle in 2019 where she talked about the importance of this rumor to her as a black Puerto Rican woman, whilst acknowledging fully that it was unproven. Yeah. And she said, for all of the historic queer women couples we know, painfully few of them are between two women of color. If there's a crop of rumors surrounding Frida and Josephine, there's a reason. I understand it intimately. It's a desire to be seen, to imagine that there's a you before the you that you are now, that she too could have found love. So I guess I just wanted to end by saying that I think that the rumors about Josephine Mm. are ultimately a symptom of the treatment of Frida's sexuality by scholars and, like, the treatment of queer women's history by scholars in general. And the solution to that is not to, like, fact-check Carmen Phillips, but it's for historians and like everyone who makes historical content, mm. including us as podcasters, to do better in addressing the history of queer women of color. Yeah. I think in general, this is something, a kind of approach you can take to like rumors or difficult to prove things about history, that at mm. some point you have to take this approach that's like, we can't tell whether or not it's true. And so it becomes more important to figure out like mm. why this has come about and what it means to people. Yeah, Like, even in terms of, like, the Chavella story, you know, Mm. like, Chavella and Frida. Hypothetically, Chavella could have made this up out of whole cloth. Mm -hmm. I don't think that she did. Mm. But even so, it's worth looking at something like that and being like, well, this is still valuable information about Mm. how she viewed Frida, how she viewed her gender, how, like, Mexican queer women's culture kind Mm. of is. And I guess there's something the same to say about that with the Josephine Baker story. The value in it is not necessarily, is this true or not? It's why does this 
click with people mm. so much. Yeah. And, like, we critiqued just before people for jumping on the idea that Frida and Josephine slept together just because they're two queer women who are in the same room. But I guess hearing that quote from Carmen Phillips, there's also the fact that, like, queer women, especially queer women of colour, are going to jump on this because they have so little representation provided to them elsewhere that if they have an opportunity to think, oh, maybe these two queer women of colour had a relationship that's mm. going to be really important to them. Yeah. yeah, I guess that that's fair. If you only see, you know, one pair of queer women in the same room together, you have to put everything mm. on them, right? Yeah, like, yeah. as, you know, Carmen yeah. Phillips has essentially said in that yeah. quote, the point in saying Josephine and Frida slept together is not that Josephine and Frida slept together, but it's that queer women of colour could have sex and could have love and could have happiness. Yeah. And you have to be careful in addressing that rumour to debunk one without debunking the other. Yeah, absolutely. With that, we've been Queer as Fact. My name is Eli. I'm Alice. I'm Irene. If you enjoyed this episode and you would like to find more of our content, we are on Podbean, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever good podcasts are found. If you do listen to us on Apple Podcasts in particular, we would really appreciate it if you left a review and a rating out of five stars. It really helps us to find a wider audience. I will read you a review now. Oh, we haven't had one of these in a while. So we had a review from someone whose username is mostly a bunch of numbers. So we won't say it, but they know who they are. (laughs) And the title is great and it is five stars and the body of it reads, just supporting you all. Thank you. So it's as simple as that. (laughs) If you don't want to write a review, you don't have to. Just tell us your dog's name or something. That's totally fine. Yeah. But thank you very much to that person for taking the time out of their day to do that. We have another review from Obert93. They also gave us five stars and the title of their review is Love This. Um, And they say, consistently blown away by the level of research that goes into each episode and the analysis as well. Thank you for this amazing podcast. (laughs) I think that's particularly fitting on this episode, given that you've been researching Frida Kahlo for maybe three million years. Maybe so. We are also blown away by the level of research. (laughs) We are. (laughs) If you would like to find us on social media, we're on Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr as Queer as Fact, or you can email us directly at queerasfact at gmail.com or you can post stuff to us. Our post office box address is on our website. You can also find all kinds of other stuff on our website. We are very slowly uploading sources for all of our episodes. I'm going to try and get this one up like ASAP because this is a very source heavy episode and I feel you could use the guide and you know there's also all of our information on there if you've immediately forgot it once I have said it to you if you would like to support us financially you can buy our merch on Redbubble or you can give us a small monthly amount of money by subscribing to us on Patreon one of the things you'll get to do is to vote on episode topics and you know one day you'll get two very long episodes that are more than you bargained for when you do that (laughs) we respectfully acknowledge the people of the Kulin Nation We pay our respect to their elders, both past and present, and we acknowledge and uphold their continuing relationship to the land on which this podcast is recorded. We will be back on the 1st of April, so we will see you then.